Girls, and welcome back to the Sweet Tea Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Dawson, and I am joined by none other than the Mandy <laughs> Drogan, one of the top educational reform chicks in the state of Texas, if not the country. She has done so many amazing things. Mandy, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> Absolutely. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Like we've been dreaming about the day we get to pull you on. And today Stop. just feels like the day. And you wore pink. Uh, yes. Is it always pink in here? Oh, we love our pink. Can I just move my office here, please? 100%. Yes. Okay. That way we can just pull you onto every episode. It'd there you great. go. I would great. love it. <laughs> so what is it that you do here at the foundation? Um. I guess I'm the resident mama bear. Mm -hmm. I, I think like that. that's that would probably be the best way to describe me. Um, I'm a mom of three. I have three kids, six, four, and two. So my purpose in life is to advocate for my own children, but also for every child in Texas. And my title here is the campaign director of Next Generation Texas. So. I just get to think about and strive for how we ensure that the next generation of Texas is prepared and educated to launch into the world and be happy and thriving and continue this American experiment, this Texas experiment, which is to ensure that we are happy and free and prosperous. That's my job. Wow. Cut. Podcast over. That was amazing. Uh, sounds like a dream job. So how did you end up in the position you are now? Like, really, like, really, how did mom of three end up like changing education across Texas? Well, um, this is a I appreciate that. That's it's flattering. But I'm just a vessel. I'm a vessel that carries a message. The wishes and desires of parents from across Texas, oftentimes the tears that they shed with me, telling me why their child needs access to something better, mm -hmm. something different, something innovative that they can't afford, that the system that has assigned them a school simply because they live on a street is not working. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to acknowledge that a one-size-fits-all system isn't for every child. A lot of people don't realize this. My child attends a public school. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, it's wonderful. So I constantly am talking to Texans about the fact that we can love and lift up our public schools and ensure particularly that our teachers are supported with what they need to educate our children, while also at the same time acknowledging that we have a very antiquated system. Mm -hmm. The idea that we assign and dictate to families that they must send their child to a specific school simply because they live on a certain street is just outdated mm -hmm. and it locks too many children, millions of children out of the right educational environment for them. So I've been involved in education reform for over a decade and it was a passion of mine after being a part of something called the Anti-Poverty Forum and hearing economists and all sorts of different experts, policy experts, PhDs, um, high-ranking government officials talk about how we change poverty in our country. We've spent trillions of dollars, mm -hmm. trillions of dollars over the past 60 years. And 
the poverty rate is really unchanged. But the one thing that stood out to me was when I listened to a woman named Virginia Walden Ford, who was just a mama bear in inner city DC, and her son was being recruited into gangs. Mm. Straight up, she tells it, my son was being recruited into gangs in high school, and she fought with Congress to get the DC Opportunity Scholarship for her child, which meant he could go to a different school, a private school, and get away from the bad influences and thrive. And I listened to her and she said, this is the way for every child. And then I started doing research and I realized this is the way. Mm. This is how we truly change the foundation of America to go back to what we were founded upon, Mm -hmm. which is freedom. But when I say change the foundation, I mean, we return to the foundation. We change the path that we're on. Mm -hmm. We are on a trajectory where that just look around. We've got young people that are hurting. They are lost. Mm -hmm. They have not been properly educated. They have strayed away from what made our country great, which is the freedom to pursue your own dreams for Mm -hmm. your own life and your own family. And that's what truly fulfills most people and brings us joy. And so education freedom for every child, regardless of their income, regardless of the street they reside on, that's what we fight for. And ever since I had my first child six years ago, um, I, I talk about something Something happened. I had always fought for this, or I say always, for over a decade. But when I had my first child, I can vividly remember when she was placed on my chest and it was like a lightning strike went through my body of love of something that I you can never imagine it till you hold your child for the first time Mm -hmm. and I knew that my purpose in life was to fight for her and now I have two other children so to fight for them and part of fighting for them is ensuring that their future is in a well-educated society Mm -hmm. And when I look at what's going on in far too many parts of Texas and across the country, too many children do not have access to a high-quality education. Yeah, it's like they're suffering in the system. They're suffering in the system. They are passed through a system, and then they are thrown out into a world that they are woefully underprepared for. It is a culture shock. Mm -hmm. They cannot provide for themselves, much less families. And that's where we see a cycle of desperation. Mm -hmm. We see a cycle of failing to fulfill our potential, their potential, a cycle of crime, a cycle of government dependence, a cycle of misery. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we break that cycle is we ensure that every child has an excellent education. That's amazing. I actually really like how you compared like breaking the poverty uh, or breaking the cycle of poverty to well-educated children and people, a society that's very well-educated. Because I came from like a lower income family and I always looked, I was like, one day I'm going to make it to college and I'm going to like set a new trajectory for my life. And I always like looked up to like to education in general. I just, I love school. I wasn't great at it. 
oftentimes. Um, and I wasn't either. Believe- <laughs> I was a yeah. special education student, actually, so I wasn't either. Never would have believed that, yep. <laughs> ever. Um, yeah, I just, like, I felt like I struggled a lot. Um, and just, like, certain classes. And it, it, I saw that it really depended on the teacher for me a lot of times and even the way that I learned. But the most surprising thing for me is that when I finally did get to college, because I'm the first one in my family to go to college, I... Um, in my immediate family, I got a 4.0 because I took a comms class and she told me directly, like, this is how you get an A. If you do these things, if you study in this way, you will pass this class. And then I applied that to all my other classes and I was thriving and I was so like happy, but also so upset that I'm like, man, if I applied this back in like high school and junior high, I would have had like a, you know, I would be somewhere totally different right now. It was so frustrating. So I definitely identify with the fight that you're on. And so it sounds like not just motherhood inspired you, but like that this has just always been in you. So did it start with poverty then? Like you were just, you like, was there like a seminal moment where you were just like, I want to get involved in policy or I want to change the world that I see? Like, was there a moment? Well, so sure, but we would go back to my childhood, um, which, so my, (laughs) crazy story, my brother was an exceptional basketball player, and I grew up middle class in a predominantly white area, um, and he was an exceptional athlete, and my father worked downtown, and his, um, his assistant she worked for uh, the Boys and Girls Club. Oh, yeah. So um, that specialized, and I guess her, again, I'm telling the story from when I was a child, but she had a specific area of kids, and the majority of them apparently lived in a specific public housing unit. Mm. And she told my dad, they, you know, just in conversation, whatever, um, that these kids, you know, th- how they were trying to help them and basketball and all these things. And she knew that my brother was a great basketball player. And she said, you should take your son to play basketball with him. This was in the projects. There's That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And my dad did. <laughs> and he went and he met these kids. They were young, eight, nine, ten years old at the time. And they actually, you know, at that time, they welcomed my brother and he definitely was not as good Mm -hmm. as them but he he could hold his own and then my dad decided you know these kids could really use actual um competition not just at their um, housing unit but i could start an aau basketball team and he did and so he traveled with them and for years when it was basketball aau basketball season um my dad would handle everything for the majority of the kids, especially those whose um, families could not afford it. And I just remember him talking about giving back and making sure that, you know, every child deserves an opportunity at life. And I, so I saw that from a very young age that my family wanted to give back mm-hmm. to disadvantaged children. And um that became a part of me and a desire. And then, like I said, just understanding and wanting to pursue a life that gave back to the community, watching Virginia Walden Ford at the Anti-Poverty Forum, it all just kind of, it just clicked for me. Mm-hmm. And then there was a series of things that happened um, very randomly. So my husband was Ted Cruz's first campaign manager. We did not know each other at that time. Uh, and then traveled with him across the country after he was elected senator Um And so 
I had a chance meeting with him and Senator Cruz, as a lot of people know, it has been he says that this is the issue that is most important to him. So there's a lot of provincial things that occurred where that I was just put on a path. Mm -hmm. And I every time that an opportunity arose, an opportunity to fight for someone, I took it. And so somehow I have ended up in this position of being a vessel to fight for the moms and dads of Texas. That's incredible. I love that you like dove into your past and showed that, you know, if you just answer the call, answer the call and pursue, it's not like you have to have like, okay, I'm here and then I need to get to here. It's just, you just follow. That's it. Yeah. My background is not anything that would have led me down this path. But yes, every time um, a door opened or there was a calling, I just try and and heed that call. And that's what I feel like right now. um, That's what I'm doing. I just have the opportunity to hear from the parents of Texas and lock arms with them Mm -hmm. and use my voice and platform that I've been given to share their voices. Yeah, well, you like there's you're just so passionate. I love it. Like and and it's paid off. Like you are helping bring so much change and innovation, hopefully. Now, school choice is something that, you know, I think it's a buzzword a lot of us hear, but this is like a perfect segue into like our policy poll section. So, I know it's a very complex subject, but could you just give a general overview? Like what is school choice for someone who's like, "Hey, I've heard that word." Obviously, I know that some people hate it, some people love it. What sure. what is it? It's the right for every single parent to select the best learning environment for each of their children. Full stop. That was great. That's school choice. It's it's not complicated. A lot of people um, want to make it a super complicated thing, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's just a recognition that every parent, particularly low-income parents, have the same rights that other parents that can either pick up and move to an excellent public school district, because we have lots of wonderful public schools. As I said, I'm a public school parent. Mm-hmm. Um, or strike a check for a private school or anything like that. If you don't have that ability, you still have the right. You should have the dignity of selecting the best education for your child. It should not be dictated by the government. So how does the system work currently? So every child in Texas um, that is attending a public school, they get what's called a basic allotment. And the best way that I can describe the basic allotment, I'm a visual learner. So the best way that I describe it is it would be like walking into a restaurant and er ordering the hamburger meal. Okay, that's the education and education would be the hamburger meal. It's all the things. It's your hamburger and your French fries and the ketchup and it's all everything. So that is what an education is in this um, analogy. But it starts with the basic allotment, which is the frozen hamburger patty. So every child gets the basic allotment, period, full stop. A hamburger patty is the basic component to a hamburger meal. Then we add in, in our education system, what's called weights. On our hamburger, it's things like, first we add heat, right? We add heat to the burger. Then we add lettuce. Then we add ketchup. Then we add you know, we whatever add you want, cheese, pickles, tomatoes <laughs> if you want, whatever. Then you add the red. Then you add all these things. So if someone just tossed out a frozen hamburger after you ordered a 
a hamburger meal, you'd say, what is that? Okay, so the basic allotment is the same thing. There is a a, a dollar amount. It's a little bit over $6,000 that every child gets. And then there's all these toppings that we throw onto it. You have the um, rural topping or weight. You have the mid-size topping or weight. You have the urban. You have the poverty. You have the special needs. You have a ton of different toppings or weights. And that's how you get the education funding system. So in Texas, the statewide average for last year was $15,780 per student, according to the Texas Education Agency. That's how much more money is added into our children. Okay, so then what happens? So as a public school parent, any public school parent, the assumption would be, oh, my child takes that money with them to whatever school they go to. Nay, nay, <laughs> that's not how this works. What happens is after they get the totality of kids, the state will send a block of money based on everything that's gone into it, all the total calculations, for the superintendent and school board to determine how to spend it. Hmm. And that's the problem here is people don't realize this. Just because a dollar amount is allocated to each child, that money does not have to follow them to their school or their classroom. Mm. And that's why you get people going, taxpayers like, oh, we're spending all this money on property taxes and education funding and da 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 da. And then you've got everybody going, but we're underfunded, but we're underfunded. And there is a disconnect that I would argue is intentional. Ooh. I would say it is very intentional because here's the thing about education funding, specifically here in Texas. We can look back in history. I'm going to go back to 1970. Mm. And when adjusted for inflation, let me say, according to the National Center of Education <laughs> Statistics, which is by the Department of Education, who tracks this across the entire country, we can go back at data and see that since 1970, when adjusted for inflation, spending on every single student, every student in Texas has increased by 166%. Whoa. That's when adjusted for inflation. Now I'm going to tell you a secret. <laughs> Ooh, spill the tea. Right? We can look at education spending during that same time period when adjusted for inflation for teacher pay. And we can see that while per pupil spending has increased in Texas by 166%, we've only increased teacher pay by 16%. Whoa. And here's why I say this is all intentional. There has been a permanent hierarchy that I have kind of now just dubbed the education profiteers. I don't know any better way to say it. There is a significant amount of money, billions. Let's be clear how much we're spending in Texas. $85 billion last year on every single child in Texas. Whoa, that is so much money. It's a lot of money. And, and 
We appropriated in the 88th regular session when they passed House Bill 1, which was the Texas budget bill that the governor signed into law, we passed the largest public education funding increase in Texas history. Yay! (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) Where is all this money going? Tell me. I want to know. Well, I can tell you it's going to a lot of curriculum. It's going to um, public school safety. It's going to a little bit of teacher pay raises and, and some other things. But my point is here, of course, we need to fully fund public education. And we keep putting more and more money into public education. But the facts show us, and quite frankly, common sense shows us, That the more money that goes into a classroom, the better off students do. The two most important indicators in a child's success in their education is their parents' involvement and the teacher in their classroom. Oh, that kind of validates what I said earlier when I was like, it really depends on the teacher if it thrived or not. The profiteers have intentionally kept, this is, this is, this is going to get a little crazier, but listen, hear me out. They have intentionally kept teacher wages low to keep them perpetually angry. Mm. Let me offer a little more proof. Just last Friday, I sat in a 12-hour-long committee hearing. That sounds fun. For House Bill 1. It is an excellent bill. It has empowering parents with education savings accounts. Yay. That's awesome. Every single parent should be making the choice of where to send their child. Mm -hmm. It also has an additional $6 billion in it. An additional $6 billion. A lot of it are teacher pay raises. $4,000 teacher pay raises. That is fantastic. That's amazing. It's wonderful. Can I get a hallelujah? Amen. Let's pay our teachers what they're worth. Okay. I'm I'm here for it. I want the teachers in my child's class and in her school to receive pay raises. We sat and listened to the second panel of experts. And most of them are superintendent. There were three experts. I'm using that because they are superintendents and or former superintendents that now run associations, a.k.a. unions. They can call it whatever they want. We can put as much lipstick on that pig as we want. They're unions. That's what they are. They're affiliated with unions. They talk to unions. They hang out with unions. They use the messaging of unions. They're unions. So let's just be clear. But we sat there and listened to them in over an hour get quizzed and answer with absolutely zero concern for the tens of thousands of teachers that are ready for their much-deserved pay raises that the governor's like, I want to give you pay raises. I also want to empower parents with the choice of where to send their child to school. This is a win-win, a rising tide that will lift all boats. Mm -hmm. They literally took a poll. Ken King asked every single one of those representatives of the unions, will you support HB1, which has the teacher pay raises, 
if it also includes the education savings accounts to empower parents. And the ESAs allow parents to... To make the choice, if they don't have the money, to send their child to a different school. ESAs, education savings accounts, allow Mm -hmm. them to select a different learning environment, whether that's a different private school, whether that's a um, homeschool, whether that's career and technical training, community college. There's that's the amazing thing about ESAs. They are so innovative and made for the 21st century of parents helping guide their students, their children that they know and love more than any bureaucrat, any superintendent, Mm -hmm. any association or union leader. They know and love them. ESAs are how parents can be the ultimate decision maker in their lives. But they were polled and every single one of them said on behalf of teachers in every district that they represent, we will forego all teacher pay raises. There is no amount of money that you could give us or teachers that we would ever support a parent being able to remove their child from the learning environment that the government has dictated. Oof, that's that's yucky. Clear as day. Oh my gosh. It's yeah, it's gross. And they've said it many times before, but that is what this is about. It is a um it is a battle between parents, Texans, and those profiteers mm-hmm. that maintain control of the money and our kids. So what is what is um, what are the common critiques of school choice? So when these individuals, these superintendents get up there and they're like, yeah, on behalf of everyone, like we don't support it. Why? It just sounds like you said common sense. What are what are their criticisms of it? What are their fears? Their fears. um, They'll talk about uh, that. There's no accountability, which is just patently false. Um, I would argue there's more accountability. I, as a parent, believe that the school works for me and my child. I love my child more than anyone can. I want what's best for her more than anybody else on the face of the earth other than my husband. Mm -hmm. That's it. Period. Full stop. I do not expect any teacher, administrator, human being to want what's best for my child like I do. And therefore, I should be the ultimate decision maker in her education. And I want the school to partner with me and agree with that. Mm -hmm. Meaning I want a high quality education that's aligned with my values, period. Okay, my child's school does that. Love it. I want every parent to have that choice. So number one would be parents, parents being happy and satisfied. And when we introduce choice, if a parent is not happy and satisfied, they can leave. Mm-hmm. You are accountable to a parent first and foremost. But but I'm going to go down the other paths. Let's go with taxpayer accountability. So here's how an education savings account works. If you are dissatisfied with the education that your child is receiving, whether there's a problem with the, um, the quality, because let's also point out, I, I haven't talked about this yet, that 50% of the kids in Texas cannot read on grade level. There is a 97% guarantee if you cannot read on grade level by the third grade, you will never catch up. Oh, wow. We have 6 million, well, we have about 5.5 million in our public education system. That means we have over 2.5 million kids in our public education system that cannot read on grade level. Okay, so let's just 
shine a light on the numbers and be honest. All right, so we have 60% of kids that cannot do math on grade level. So let's say that. So then when we look at accountability, and let's not even talk about the fact that the A through F system is being sued and all these other issues with the accountability system. I'm not going to argue on that, on what's going on. But for education savings accounts, the accountability, we will see how children are performing because just like children in a public school take a star test. Now, there's some people that want to get rid of those or phase it out to a norm reference test, whatever. But there's the star test right now. Which used to be the tax, right? The or It, it was yes. teaks and then tax. Well, then... the teaks are what the teaks are the guidance by the State Board of Education, the curriculum guidance of what you need to teach. And the star exam is the exam based on the teaks. Got it. So the Texas Education um Essential knowledge, the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, that's the TEKS, and that's what they're, you're teaching in each grade. And then the alignment of the STAR test is supposed to be with the TEKS so that we can measure if the children are learning the TEKS. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So then um, with a the accountability on an ESA, we're not going in. We do not want to tell private schools or homeschoolers what to teach their children. We do want to ensure that children are being taught that if you are using taxpayer funds to educate a child, it must be at an accredited private school. If you're doing private school or um, workforce development or things like that, it must be accredited. There are 19 accrediting bodies within TEPSAC. That's who accredits private schools, which is similar to how um, colleges and higher ed is accredited. So there's boards and they go through all sorts of financial and educational audits and all of that. So you have to be an accredited private school and accredited private schools in Texas already do this, but it is written into the bill. You must take a norm reference test or the state test. So you can think of the map test as an example. That's one that's used by a lot of private schools across the country. And in, in the um, High school years, the SAT test is another example. Got it. Things like that, where the, you can get a measurement on how students are doing. Mm -hmm. Are they truly getting educated? Again, private schools already do this, so it is not anything that is um, a burden onto them. They're already doing it, but we are saying you must do it. And a third-party entity must ensure and see how are these kids doing? How are they performing? Are they doing well? Are they catching up? Is this program working, right? So that is the ac academic accountability. And then you also have the taxpayer accountability. So the way an ESA works is similar in, in um, operation to a health savings account, where that the money doesn't ever go into a private bank account. An education savings account, the money is held in a separate account, which is held by and or controlled by the comptroller's office. So they hold the account if you apply for it and the money is there. And then a education administration organization, they ensure that, you, that it is directed to approved goods and services. So what could that be? Well, an accredited private school, but it can also be used, again, for workforce development and training. Mm -hmm. We've got 
you know, a massive workforce gap right now. We are going to be short 6,000 plumbers, 4,500 HVAC workers, 4,000 welders. Um, We're short 2,000 oil and gas workers a day right now. Which is crazy because all of those industries you can make a lot of money in. A lot of money. A lot of money, which is a whole different rabbit hole (laughs) I can go into and why we have cut our CTE program availability while also increasing our spending. But my point is, is that we are ensuring that the money is held by an entity that ensures that it is being directed by the parents. So it's never deposited into their account. You're not going to open the door for waste, fraud, or abuse. And then they direct it to approved goods and services. It can be used for tutoring. It can be used for therapy. It can be used for educational materials. It can be used for co-curriculars, things that are similar to what's being offered in public schools. So for example, if I'm um, homeschooling and or I'm sending my child to a, a private school and I want my child to take German, you could use the money to go purchase a German lesson or or send you can even send them to the public school to purchase that. That's something that's also available. So it's really, really um, innovative and it's truly a way for parents to customize their child's education. So there's parental accountability. There is academic accountability and there is taxpayer financial accountability. Yeah. And so with all of that accountability, Mm -hmm. it begs the question, you know, what is their problem? And the way I was seeing it and tell me if this is right or wrong, but if the money can move around now and it follows the student, that means it could leave the school. So are they scared that like they're just going to lose all this money? And then like, will the public school start to fail Mm -hmm. if most people start leaving it? It's a great question. So there, there's two, they, they kind of talk out of two sides of their mouth, but yes to both mm-hmm. of those. So one concern is that you'll hear is, well, there is no private schools in my area. That's a lot of the rule, what they'll say, or none of the private schools want to accept this. There's nowhere for them to go. Okay. What are you afraid of then? So that's one argument. So then we'll go to the other argument. Well, if you do this, everybody will leave public schools and the public schools will fail. Well, there's two ways to go down that path. Number one, why would they leave? Why? Why would they leave? If you're if you're providing a high quality education that parents want, Mm -hmm. why would they leave? But let's go with the doomsday scenario. Yeah. The school's not teaching my kid what they need and to learn. Leaves. She's oh my gosh, not, what yeah. do we do? Okay. So this is the really great news about education freedom and school choice. And as a lover of free markets mm. and recognizing that our system that incentivizes innovation and individuals to make great choices and businesses to great make great choices. When you provide a market, when you give individuals options, everybody gets better. Mm -hmm. And the great news is 31 other states plus the District of Columbia. I talked about Virginia Walden Board earlier. So Mm -hmm. 31 other states plus D.C. offer some form of private school choice. Where are they ranked? Nearly way above Texas. (laughs) Nearly... 
uh, a dozen have passed what we call universal school choice. That is just the acceptance that every single parent, every single parent should be selecting the school that best serves their child. And when you do that, there is no mass exodus. The highest take-up rate, take-up rate is the percentage of families that utilize their choice and select a different school. Mm -hmm. The highest take-up rate in the country is from New Hampshire, and it's 5.5%. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Is right. There is no mass exodus from our public school system. None. There is no mass exodus. It has never happened. The doomsday, henny penny, the sky is falling. (laughs) It's just not real. The majority of parents want to select the school that's down the street. Mm-hmm. But that makes sense. Yeah, they do. I wish that I could select the school down the street. I live in Austin. Y'all, I cannot do it. <laughs> I can't. We have to drive into an entirely different county, into an entirely different city to send my child to the school I want to send her to. Which is still a public school at the end of the it day. It is. It's a public charter school. I love it. It's got wait lists of thousands. People love it. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's because there's a value alignment. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's a high quality education. My my first grader is like she's reading at a third grade level right now. Amazing. As are the kids in her classroom that are public school students across every, again, racial background, income background, all of it. Kids can learn, period, mm-hmm. when you teach them and focus on what they need to learn. And that's what I love about this, the school that we selected. But, but my point is, is that What it does when you introduce the opportunity for a parent to truly be the decision maker, it incentivizes the public school to get better. That's what I was going to ask. It's like, you know, if there's this like if there's no mass exodus and the kids are staying there, does the quality of education get better? It does. And so one state that I love to point to because they did it very well. Now, they did it in an incremental way. And that's important to note. But Florida. 20 years ago, well, 21 years ago in 2002, Florida passed their first private school scholarship. And it was specifically for their low-income demographic because Florida's low-income kids were not doing well at all. Okay. So it passed by some bold legislators, even one African-American who broke with his party's platform, that's the Democrats that historically oppose anything that would take away union control, um, because he knew it was right for the kids in his community. And they passed it in 2002. It was implemented in 2003. And at that time period, Florida's low-income demographic, specifically the low-income demographic, ranked number 33 in the nation on the nation's uh, on the NAEP scores. That's considered the nation's report card. That's mm-hmm. how we compare um, scores from across the country. And Florida's low-income demographic ranked number 33. Within 16 years of introducing private school choice, there was no mass exodus from the public school system. There were kids that utilized it, mm-hmm. and it made the entire system better. By 2019, Florida's low-income demographic ranked number one on the NAEP scores. That's amazing. To this day, Florida's low-income demographic, when you addressed for demographics, ranked number one. 
I'm talking they beat Massachusetts, Vermont, any of these states that want to act like that they are better because they are homogenous and mm-hmm. small. Mm-hmm. Florida outranks them. They're low income demographic. But, you know, that could be a one off. Let's go look at Indiana. In the same time period, Indiana passed private school choice. Indiana's low income demographic ranked number 22 in the nation at that point. Within 16 years, they jumped to number three. So that's on the NAEP scores. Let's look at other rankings. How about high school rankings? We can look at Arizona that has multiple of the top 10 high school, public high schools in the country. Florida does too. We can look across the board at other metrics. Let's not just talk about test scores because let's be real. Look, you and I said it at the beginning of the show. We, I was not particularly good at yeah. school. Um, I had a learning disability. And so it's not something that came easy to me mm-hmm. at all. We know that test scores is not the only thing that's important. It's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. But it's not the only thing that's important. Let's look at outcomes of kids of life outcomes. We know that kids who participate in private or charter schools have better life outcomes. I'm talking less likely to end up in jail, more likely to get a post-secondary degree or certification, more likely to go on and be gainfully employed. All of these metrics that we look at to help us see was the education successful outside of just test scores? And the answer is yes. That is just so inspiring. It's like, not only does it impact the child and the family and the school district, but like our society at large, which to tie this all back to what you said at the beginning, the problem of poverty, you know, it sounds like educate like across the board can lift people out of that cycle when done and applied correctly. That's right. And, you know, um, we can look at a lot of different studies. Some people point out uh, partisan things and um, TPPF, we're a conservative think tank. And I like to sometimes look over at the Brookings Institute, which is more seen as a left-leaning think tank. And they find the same things. When you implement private school choice, these kids do better. But they also came out with a study that is widely quoted all the time um, over a decade ago that said it just takes three things to keep you out of poverty. You have a 90% chance of never being in poverty if you do these three things. The first one was graduate high school. Mm -hmm. The second one is get a job. And the third one is don't have a child until you're married. Common sense, maybe. But it's true. Mm-hmm. And this was a left-leaning organization. It is. That... It's a left-leaning organization. And I, I look at that and you combine that with giving opportunity to kids, our most disadvantaged kids. I believe that every parent should be in control, but we have a massive massive crisis with our low-income families. Mm -hmm. We have a massive crisis within our minority communities. In what way? In that we're not educating their children. We're not. We're not educating them. And we continue to tell them as a system, 
Just give us time to fix it. If there's just more money, we'll fix it. I told you earlier, we keep increasing the funding. At some point, we have to say, yes, we absolutely need to fully fund every child which is what this HB1 will do. We're giving billions more to the public education system. But we also must acknowledge that doing the same thing over and over again is the definition of insanity. Mm -hmm. Parents should absolutely be empowered. And when you empower parents, when you give them the opportunity to get involved in their child's education, rather than just dictating to them where they must go and how it must be, You will have more parental involvement. You will have children engaging and being in the right educational environment. You will see test scores go up. But more important than all that, you will see life outcomes improve. Mm -hmm. You will see family trees changed. And that's what I want to see. I want to see children that are growing up in poverty, that witness their parents struggling, I want to see them have a shot. You know, I've, I've had the blessing to travel around the state with the governor hearing from thousands of parents. Mm-hmm. I've had parents, I walk away almost every night with tears on my shoulders, with stories, whether it's the mom who told me that her son with Asperger's in high school tried to hang himself. Mm. Thank God her husband found him before he was successful, but it was the bullying Um, Another mother from Lufkin, she's a dancer, professional dancer, Mm. and said that her life choices, her life choices, her mother's life choices, the life choices of her family members are not good. But you know what? She loves her child. She knows that she doesn't live the best life and her mama didn't live the best life. And she knows she's she's a smart woman. She knows she wants better for her child. Her child's in an environment where she's being bullied right now. Mm. She wants her in a different environment. She wants her in the private Christian school that's there. She wants that opportunity to change generational poverty generational bad decisions she's smart enough to know where her life went off off the rails mm-hmm. and she doesn't want that for her child that's a wisdom too right it is it's it like is. she and sees these, the path that's it is i just got off a phone call earlier today with a school leader of a little school in dallas that 100 scholarships and serves low income almost exclusively minority students mm-hmm. in dallas or it's in fort worth and You know, she said, what can I do? And I said, you have to stand up and be a voice. I said, look, this is your community. These are your kids. And if you want to grow and serve more children, if you want to ensure that you're able to ensure that every child in your community has access to a high quality education like you're providing, then you have to stand up and fight. Yeah, that's I mean, just booking that. That's amazing. Um I just wonder, you know, to the parents out there listening or even to people like me that are, you know, I'm recently married. I don't have kids. Of course, we want kids. Will it happen? I don't know. But it's like even as like a single person and like no kids, it's interesting to see. It's like I still care about them and I'm not even involved. Like I'm like, oh, can I tutor them? Can I like 
volunteered an after school studies program. So it's like, this is something I think can hit every single person. You know, you might have siblings, you might have a niece, you might have a nephew. It doesn't seem to matter what your situation is. This is the sort of issue where you can be involved in. Absolutely. It is the morally correct thing to do to ensure that every child is in the best learning environment. Um, when you have children, you will have that lightning strike. Yeah. I look forward to it. And every parent has that. Yeah. They do. They have it. But also, if you're just a citizen of Texas or America, mm -hmm. and you appreciate the freedoms that you enjoy, you should really care, regardless of where you are in life, whatever season of life that you're in, if you're in, you know, your 20s or 30s and, and free and, and don't plan on having children, or if you're in your 40s or 50s and looking towards retirement years, wherever you are, mm -hmm. not only is it the morally correct thing to do, but if you haven't looked around and observed the absolute insanity yeah that is coming out of our education system as a whole. Look, those kids that are crazy, I mean, y'all, they're the things that they are saying in college campuses. Oh. What we are witnessing with the uh, this this battle, the pro-Palestinian Hamas, Hamas. Oh, yeah. Terrorists. Yeah, like right. it's crazy. Those kids went to school in, a, in systems, and mm -hmm. I don't care where they went, where there is absolutely cultural indoctrination going on. Yeah, actually, I read a study recently that said Harvard ranks, like, the, out of all of the colleges, the lowest for how students feel about free speech. Like, they don't feel like they can exercise their free speech on Harvard, at Harvard. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, let's be real. But, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I remember when I was probably in my late, 20s and my dad was still working and he made you know some boomer comment mm -hmm. about <laughs> millennials i love that you a boomer comment we all know, we uh -huh, all know. Uh -huh. and and I, I love i love i'm a daddy's girl and so as he made some comment about well you know kids da, 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 at this point and i just looked at him and i said who do you think raised us <laughs> wow it's y'all <laughs> y'all created this <laughs> What and I you? was right, and he falls around, and he's like, oh. <laughs> well, not me. And I'm like, well, your generation did. Let's be real honest. I said, but but I'm now in the season of life of raising children, yeah. and we have to do something to change the trajectory that our country is going in. Mm -hmm. And here's why it's so important to Texas. We educate 10% of the nation's children. Ooh, that's a good stat. That's a lot. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> we can go down a lot of paths with that. Let me tell you, 10% of the nation's children are educated right here. That also means that, remember those profiteers that I talked about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That means that people, particularly in the curriculum space, they write curriculum for what Texans want. They write curriculum that will be purchased across the country, but they really pay a lot of attention to what Texas wants because mm -hmm. one state, 10 percent. Holy moly, that is the market we want right there. Interesting. So if you want to 
not only save and change the trajectory of Texas and lives of Texans, but you also see what's going on around this great country of ours and think, whoa, whoa, we need to course correct a bit here. We need to fix the entire system. This matters here. It matters because so much of what goes on in our public schools will go on around the country if we allow parents to be the ultimate decision makers. And parents, I don't care what race you are, what where you're urban, suburban, rural, I do not care how much money you have in your bank account. You want your parent your children to be raised with a great education and strong values. Yeah. And like speaking of like the cultural side of things, that kind of like slips us into like our pop culture with principles. Um and You just see, you know, Disney comes out with all this craziness, like all these propaganda machines. It's not just the educational realm, but like it sounds like that is like the nucleus, right? Like that can impact so many other spheres of life. I don't know about you, but I get very sucked into like political dramas, like the TV shows that I watch, like Madam Secretary. Um, I wrote, yeah. Oh, The Diplomat. I started watching that. I mean, like, if there's a political drama, I've probably watched it, like, multiple times. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find yourself intrigued in that since you work in policy or you're like, no, I can't. I can't watch it because I work it all day long. Sure. So I do um, and love lots of the dramas and things like that. Right now, I'm actually watching um, at night after I get all my kids to bed. My mental break is to watch The Designated Survivor. Ooh, that's a good one. And it's funny because (laughs) I can remember when I first started watching it and you asked me about my path to somehow be here. And I kind of feel like Kiefer Sutherland when he was thrown into the White House, like on the periphery, he was, you know, in the cabinet. He was in the rooms. I've been in the room for a long time. But then you kind of get in this role and you're like, I do not know how I ended up here, but I'm here. And yeah. By golly, I'm going to do my very best to speak for the people. Yeah. So uh, I can't say that I agree with the character on everything. Right. Um, but I can say that this uh, desire to advocate for those voices, specifically parents and their children, is something that I am incredibly passionate about. Yeah. And I do, when I watch that um, and and kind of the political drama and the dynamics going on with someone that, you know, never had to run for office and never had to claw their way to the top of yeah. that greasy totem yeah. pole yeah. Um, to be president, um, I just am like, oh, man, that, you know, I... A little bit more. Yeah, I just I see it. And I'm like, I, you know, just see how you can look around because um, right now being in the thick of the battle for education savings accounts and just wanting to do the right thing for families. The common sense thing, the thing that you think everyone should be on board with. Right. But trying to battle the political entities, because that's what this is. And I say this all the time publicly. Um, we're not having a philosophical argument, mm-hmm. period. I do not know, uh, I mean, other than, again, those people that sat up that have been brainwashed, in my opinion, from, you know, the associations or unions. I don't 
don't know a normal, rational person, certainly not a parent, Mm -hmm. that would ever argue that every parent knows and loves their child the most and should be the ultimate decision maker in their education. Not one person. Yeah. We're in a political battle. It is Mm -hmm. a political battle of wills. Who has the most power? Who's going to spend the most money in the political cycle? Who did what to who 15 years ago that they're still holding a grudge about? So you're basically living your own political drama. Pretty much. <laughs> that's Yes. And that's what I'm saying. So when I watch it at night, sometimes I'm like, oh, my gosh. So we is... have a little. Yeah. So we have a little question segment um, and we can go through these like quicker. You don't need to go super in depth. But You know, one of the questions we had from our audience is, you know, what should I look for when choosing a school for my child? You know, like they're just thrown to these schools. But like if you get to pick, what are you looking for? Like what are some things that should stand out? Um, So quality. Is your school providing a high quality education? So the first question that I would ask, which is going to be shocking to people, is if you're going in at the uh, the elementary level is. How do they teach reading? Oh. Do they use phonics or whole word? Because we have 50 years worth of data that proves that phonics is the far superior method of teaching reading. It's funny you say phonics because I remember as a kid, my dad got me that box hooked on phonics. Yes. And like that, I had yes, to like go through, of... whoa, that was like a so 90s that, baby memory. That is the superior way to teach children to read. Interesting. Shockingly, with 50 plus years of data proving that, in 2019, we had to pass a law, HB3, for people that are in the political realm, that mandated in the state of Texas the teaching of phonics for reading. It gets worse. So we had to pass the law to do that. But there was an audit done. And we found that approximately 40% of our uh, education, our elementary educators, still use the whole word method. Oh, my gosh. It's crazy. So that would be if I'm going in, I would say, how are we learning to read? That would be the first thing. So quality. And then the second most important thing is the transparency. I want to know what's being taught in my child's classroom and why it's being taught. Mm-hmm. And no, ma'am or no, sir, you are not going to push your political beliefs into my child's brain. Mm-hmm. I don't care which culturally popular. I don't care what people are screaming about. I don't care. And this is the other thing that some people might disagree with me on. But for my child, I don't want my elementary age student to be handed a device. Oh, like we're going to iPads and things like that. Yeah. Far too many of our elementary age children are handed an iPad in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. I, that's shocking. You know, when I talked about those profiteers, you know who makes a pretty penny off every iPad being in every public school classroom for every child? I assume it's them. The profiteers. How do they make money off of it? They sell the public school system iPads. Oh, my gosh. They are not donated for free. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Or Teslas. We talk about that. We've got lots of school districts right down the street. Eaton's. They just bought a fleet of Teslas. For, For what? 
I don't know, public school something. Like it's not like it's a bus where you can carry a bunch of people. No, because <laughs> employees, because lots of them get car stipends and cars oh. and vehicles to use. Right. Oh. Right. Hmm. La Jolla ISD has a water park. La Jolla has a water park? 80% of their kids can't read on grade level. Oh. But they have a $20 million water park, not a swimming pool, a water park. That is crazy. It is crazy. So anyways, I want to know, I want to know that my child is getting a high quality education and I am not a fan of young brains staring at iPads a lot. I think that, um, well, there has been a lot of research done, um, but I just, I don't want it. So for me, yeah. I'm going to go, how do you teach them to read? Are you using devices to teach my child anything? No, thank you. And what is the culture in this school? Yeah, those are three really amazing things. And I love how practical you made them because, you know, I never would have thought like, oh, how are they teaching me to read? Like, I feel like a lot of us would just look at test scores and be like, well, none of the kids are testing well, so it's probably bad school. But then I like how you dug deeper and you're like, ooh, you're going to be a very educated parent asking educated questions. And then you'll, that's like a really good test for these school, you know, these schools that you're choosing. Like, man, if they can answer that well, then it would be worth me sending my kid here. Absolutely. So thank you for those super practical tips. Thank you for joining us, Mandy, and hanging out. I hope and wish you all the luck on your school choice. We'll probably invite you back for a little update, see what's going on. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So um, for people who want to follow your work or get to know you better or get involved in school choice, where, where can they go? Well, they can reach out via email. Um, that's really the best way. I am not a social media person. Um, I It is not my jam, but email. I People, I think, are surprised that I actually respond. You know, we send out these massive emails to 170,000 people. Um, I, I, I write them, by the way, um, with my southern twang and sassiness so Mm -hmm. sometimes I get you know some some love and sometimes I get some hate but I respond to everybody um so people can reach out to me with my email mdrogan at texaspolicy.com I love I love to hear from parents I love to hear your stories I love to know how I can fight for you in whatever path um I mean, that's that's is there, it. How do they sign up for the newsletter? Oh, you can go to txparentsmatter.com. And there you can sign up for our newsletter where that you can get on our big old mailing list. And like I said, you know, I sent last week, I sent an email with the happy dance and I had some parents respond back that they were dancing in their kitchen. And that's what I was going for. Um, so it's fun. That's that's really the best way to do it. And my phone number's on the website. Anybody can reach out and call me. I don't hide it. You brave, um, brave Yeah, soul. I know. I, right. I know. Sometimes. <laughs> if you swear at me, I block you. <laughs> but other than that, I love to hear stories. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because it it empowers myself. It empowers the team. It empowers everyone that does have a platform to speak out for you. And I just want every parent in Texas to know that you are enough. We are fighting for you. And um, we promise to not stop until you have the best education for your children. Amazing. Wow. 
period, done. <laughs> Just like, I think I'm gonna start saying that now. You, I was like, yeah, period, done. I like that you said that. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, everyone be sure to go and check out that website. I'm like, also tons of great resources on there as well. Um, I'm just gonna highlight that the design on the website is also, you know, kind of cool. Um, not that I'm the one who did it. Uh, but we hope you guys have a great weekend. Happy Friday. And we'll see you next week. 